Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for greeting one another. As uh, Luke said, we've been listening to the scripture uh, by standing. It's uh, something that the Christians have done for many years as a sign of respect. So Tyler Elliott is going to read our passage today. It's 23 verses long, so I just invite you Stick with it and listen carefully. We're going to look at this together this morning. So listen as Tyler reads. And when he finishes, we'll say, thanks be to God together. Okay. A reading from Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress and unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect... Whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is a Messiah, or Look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. And uh, if you are using one of the black Bibles there, it's on page 825. Uh, But we're going to look at Mark 13 verses 1 through 23 this morning. And um, if you haven't been with us, we're in this series called The Way of Jesus. We're looking at Mark's gospel. And the whole reason that we're spending time reading Jesus' words and learning about Jesus is because we want to learn Uh, the way of Jesus and how to live the way of Jesus. 
So as we think about this together, uh, before I talk to you about this text, uh, some of you saw in the bulletin column that I got back on Tuesday morning uh, from uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And um, I know some of you think that I'm retired, but I actually is still on staff at Cherry Hills. And so one of my responsibilities is to visit some of our global mission partners. And so uh, Chris Hogan and I went to uh, Bangkok. In fact, last Sunday, we were worshiping in an international church there with Annie. And uh, so here's just some pictures. If you've never met Jeff and Annie, they have been there 29 years. And Jeff uh, was actually on staff uh, before they left. He was on our staff. And so, again, as we spent time, that's the Nightlight Ministry Makes Jewelry. And we stood in the jewelry shop there uh, where they present that. This is the International Church. There is about a 1,000 people that attend two services there uh, from many different uh, backgrounds, 66 different countries represented in that church. And so it's very interesting. This is one of the streets not far from Jeff and Annie. Uh, that spent time walking. And again, uh, Chris and I uh, did some training. I spoke in chapel on encouragement. I guess what I just want to stop and say is this. We are privileged to partner with Jeff and Annie Dieselberg. What they are doing there is important work. They are bringing hope to people that have been trafficked, to people that have worked in prostitution. And it is a tricky, tricky thing. And it takes the power of God. And so I hope that you will continue whenever they come to mind to pray for them. And they were so happy uh, to have some people come and just see their work. And so we're we're glad uh, that we can partner with them. And I just want to say, Cherry Hills, thank you for your mission heart. Thanks for caring about other nations besides just our own. So as we look at Mark 13 today, if you're following along in the notes, I hope you'll see that there's always been great interest in the future and end times. There has always been great interest in the future and end times. We're going to see that in our text today. But I don't know about you, but when I think about the future and end times, one of the things that I really like is I like to know what's going to happen so I can be in control. Anybody relate to this? I really want to have it figured out. Please don't surprise me unless it's a good surprise. And so uh, when I was a kid, my, both sets of our grandparents uh, lived far enough away that it meant road trips. My grandparents in Joliet, when we lived in Danville, was a two-hour drive. And then my grandparents in Northwest Iowa, that was like a nine or 10-hour drive. So I remember being in the car, and I don't know how you felt, but when I was a child, time felt different then. And so I remember asking, sometimes just a half hour outside of town, when will we get there? And then I had kids, and they asked the same thing. When will we get there? Waiting is not easy. You, you like to be in control. You like to know when we will get there. Maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe uh, you're waiting on a diagnosis. Maybe you're waiting to see if a wayward child will come home. Maybe you're waiting to see if a certain relationship will heal. Maybe you're waiting for some of the pain in your heart to go away. And you're asking, when? And that's exactly what happens in this account. What Tyler just read... Uh, I'm not going to read everything again, but basically, if you're following along, let me just unpack here um, that Jesus' reply to their when question is surprising. Jesus' reply to their when question of when are these things going to happen, because he gives an announcement that shocks them, his his answer is surprising. And uh, I want us to see um, what Kent Hughes says about this passage we're going to look at uh, this morning. 
He says, chapter 13 records what is called Jesus' Olivet Discourse, by far the most difficult passage, I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me, in the book of Mark and along with its parallels in the other gospels. One of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. Study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness that we do not know everything. Now, uh, next week, Steve's going to finish the last verses in this chapter. So if I get anything wrong today, he's going to clean it up next week. Okay? But what I want us to see is we're going to unpack this and just see it. Jesus tells us what he tells his disciples what's coming. And then he tells them how to prepare. And I want to tell you that I think that most of the 23 verses in Mark 13, I believe that most of them are about the upcoming fall of Jerusalem. But what makes it tricky is that there's also some different phrases that scholars over the years have said, look, it can't just be that. It must also be hinting about some future events as well. So I just approach this humbly. And I just want you to know that I think all of us want to know the when questions so we can be in control. But sometimes God says, I, I want to show you a better way than just you being in control and you having it all figured out. But I want to tell you these things so that you can look ahead with faith and you can look ahead knowing that I know what's coming and I can help you. So would you pray with me as we look at this text together? God, I thank you so much that you know how we are. You know how we're made. You know how we think. And I pray that you would meet us today and that we would just be helped by your word and that you would uh, give us hearts that want to live your way instead of our own way. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you're following along, would you mind reading in that first gray box, Mark 13, three and four out loud with me. Let's read it together. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And basically what, what this is all a response to is as they are leaving the temple, if you're following along, as Jesus leaves the temple, he prophesies its destruction. As Jesus leaves the temple, he prophesies its destruction. And here's what happens. One of his disciples basically goes, look at the, these beautiful, look at this beautiful stones of this temple. And uh, he says, you see all these stones? Not one of them will be left on top of another. And they're all going, whoa, well, this, this would be big. This would be a shock. And by the way, I've thought about this a lot. I don't, know how, I don't know what caused you to sign up to follow Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus. But I was kind of quietly hoping that by signing up with Jesus, it would just mean good news nonstop. And if that is your expectation, I want you to notice that Jesus will not fulfill it. What Jesus says here is what's coming is some tough stuff. Now, again, um, what I want you to to see here is what Kent Hughes says about this uh, passage here. The temple was considered one of the great wonders of the Roman world. It had been under construction 46 years and was just nearing completion. Its spectacular location on Mount Moriah gave it imposing dominance over ancient Jerusalem From a distance, it looked like a mountain of gold. Because its nine massive gates and much of its exterior was plated with gold and silver, the incredible size of the foundation stones, almost the size of boxcars, 
was breathtaking. Now, again, I, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture, a rendering of this, but we'll put one on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of what the temple complex probably looked like that Jesus was walking among uh, and his disciples were talking about. And then, again, I don't know if you've ever stood next to a boxcar. I tried to come up with a picture of a human being. I don't know if you can see it by the telephone pole, that guy standing there. But imagine stones this big, and you're walking among them. No wonder the guy said, oh, behold, these stones, these beautiful and stuff like that. And then can you imagine how shocking it was for Jesus to say, you see these? At the end of the day, there's coming a day where they won't even be on top of each other anymore. And I think their mind was trying to say, how could someone even be able to like, physically pull those apart? This was such an impressive thing. So listen uh, what, again, the um, Life Application Bible Commentary says. About 15 years before Jesus was born, around 20 BC, Herod the Great began a massive reconstruction project to help the Jews remodel and beautify their temple. Herod had no interest in the Jews' God, but he wanted to stay on friendly terms with his subjects as well as build what he thought would be a lasting monument to his dynasty. Though the Jews disliked Herod, they were very proud of the temple. At this time, the construction project was still going on for Herod's reconstruction of the temple would not be finished until about AD 64, just a few years before it was destroyed by Rome. The temple was impressive covering about one-sixth of the land area of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It was not one building, but a majestic mixture of porches, colonnades, separate small edifices, and courts surrounding the temple. You know that great big open area? That was called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Colonnade. And that's where the New Testament believers first met when they first came to Jesus after Pentecost. But notice this, the disciples gazed in wonder at marble pillars 40 feet high, carved from a single solid stone. The temple's foundation was <clears throat> so solid that it is believed that the stone of some of the original footings remain to this day. The Jews were convinced of the permanence of this magnificent structure, not only because of the stability of construction, but also because it represented God's presence among them. The massive stones the disciples mentioned were huge white stones, some of them measuring 25 by 8 by 12 feet and weighing more than 100 tons. Now, if I was to interpret what Jesus is doing here, I will just say this. I think he's saying, relocate your hope. If your hope is in something that looks as solid and stable as this, I need to tell you there's coming a day in a few decades when they won't even have one stone upon another. And when you and I think about what Jesus is doing here, I believe that he's telling his first disciples and he wants to say to us by the spirit of God today, relocate your hope. If your hope is in something that you think is stable, that's found in this world, it may not stand. And you need to make sure you invest your hope in what will stand. Now notice, he tells them it won't happen immediately. First, there must be great upheaval if you're following along. He says it won't happen immediately. First, there must be great upheaval. So when, Lord, when are these things going to happen? He says it's not going to happen right away. First, there must be like wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, by the way, all those things are on my list of things that I prefer not to happen. 
And I don't know, again, we are fortunate not to be in many of the, like many of the countries that have war going on. But when that happens, everything gets affected. Economies get affected. Everything stable goes away. And he goes, but this is just the beginning of birth pains. This is just the beginning. And he notice, he says, these must happen. It's got, sin's got to play its way out. I'm, my plan's got to play its way out. So just know that when you see that stuff, do not freak out. Do not go. I didn't think this was going to happen if I followed Jesus. No, he says this stuff will happen. Again, notice this. He also goes on with some more challenging news when he says the disciples will pay a price to preach the gospel of Jesus. The disciples will pay a price to preach the gospel of Jesus. He says, look, you know, you signed up to follow me. And I called you to follow me and I gave you an assignment. I just want you to know it's going to cost you. You're going to be whipped. Flogged is actually even more violent word. You're going to stand before important people. You're going to stand before councils and they're going to hate what you say. And friends, I just was thinking about this earlier. When we sang, there can be no other, there's no other way. That's fine for us to sing in this room. You try saying that to some of your colleagues. Try saying that to some of your fellow classmates. Try saying that to some of your family members when you say, I just am learning that Jesus is the only way to be saved and to live life. People go, I don't need to be saved and I don't need Jesus is the only way. I want multiple ways. Friends, what we believe in is offensive to the sensibilities of the average American. It was offensive to me before I believed in Jesus. I don't want someone telling me there's only one way. I want to know that I've got options. I want to be able to control. But Jesus says, look, you guys, this is going to be hard, but it's going to open a door of witness. And remember that my purpose of restoring this world is to help people know that if they will yield to me, if they will give their lives to me, they can know life in all its fullness. It sounds paradoxical, but it's true. And then notice if you're following along, however, the Holy Spirit will give them the words to say, I like this. I love how Jesus says, but don't worry beforehand. You don't have to like drink Maalox by the gallon. You can just know that when you get to that point, I will already be there and meet you there by my Holy Spirit. The reason I'm going away is I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live in you. He's just like me. Same Holy Spirit that's lived in me. He's going to live in you. He's going to make me real to you. Even when you go through this stuff, we're going to be right there together. And you're going to notice the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Let me just give you one example in Acts 8, Acts 4, excuse me, how this was fulfilled. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation, notice this, friends, this is bold. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, 
ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Jesus said, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to meet you. And the Holy Spirit's going to give you what to say. You watch. You watch. And it's powerful. Now, notice this. Is that then Jesus says, when they see the abomination, they are to flee. When they see the abomination, they are to flee. This is an interesting thing here. It uses a phrase, the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not be standing. And so this is actually a quote from Daniel 7, 11, and 12. Three times Daniel prophesied about this. And so again, what does it mean? Uh, Dan Doriani says this. Um, he says, in fact, many Christians did flee, sparing their lives when they saw Rome's armies coming. Eusebius, the first great historian of the church, says that when the Romans fell upon Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem left the city and moved to a town called Pella. So Jesus, ever the good shepherd, told the first Christians how to survive these most harrowing years of the church's infancy. So let me kind of explain again, because this is actually very cryptic. And uh, some people uh, still say, what in, the, what in the world does this mean? So I, here's what I think is going on. I think that this actually has already been fulfilled once when Jesus says it, and it's fulfilled less than 40 years later when Jesus says it. And I think it also implies that it has a future fulfillment as well. So again, if you don't know about this, let me read this to you. This is what Danny uh, Aiken shares. He says, Verse 14 introduces to, to us one of the most cryptic and difficult phrases in the Bible, the abomination that causes desolation. First, the initial fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy was the desecration of the temple in 167 BC by the Syrian Antiochus uh, Epiphanes when he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the burnt offerings and set up an altar of Zeus in the temple. This was unquestionably an abomination that causes desolation. And so, again, there was a revolt against that. When they were, the Jewish people were very upset when they saw that kind of abomination in the temple. But then notice that second, given the context and the passage of Jesus' instructions, it appears he has in mind a second fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when the abomination of desolation is standing where it should not, perhaps as a reference to the Roman general Titus, entering the temple in September AD 70. And again, it was his army that absolutely leveled the temple. And so what was he doing standing in the temple as a Gentile who did not believe in God? That was considered an abomination that causes desolation. Only the priest was supposed to go into the temple place, the holy place like that. And so again, that's it. But then notice third, the tragic events of 167 BC and AD 70 anticipate a climactic event of horrible destruction and desecration just prior to our Lord's second coming. Jesus is speaking of the eschatological end through the eyes and the imminent destruction of the temple. The abomination, he quotes again, James Edward here, the abomination that causes desolation refers to the man of lawlessness as conceived in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, who will exalt himself in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians 2 depicts a blasphemous antichrist who will do a scandalous deed that will trigger the return of the Lord. Jesus foresaw the rise of a terrible antagonist, an antichrist, 
who will some future time unleash a severe tribulation on the people of God. Mark 13 links these things relating to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 with those days of the end. The abomination that causes desolation alludes to the destruction of the temple in AD, but is not exhausted by it. And so again, it just tells us, friends, if we are going, man, I'm sure glad all the hard stuff Jesus is talking about here ended in AD 70. We just need to remain humble. Because again, not only does this chapter go on after the parts we're going to look at today, but I think we have seen many of these cycles repeating themselves even after AD 70. We have seen wars and rumors of wars. We have seen nation rise against nation. We have seen famines, earthquakes. We have seen Christians persecuted. In fact, in 2000, this decade, this, excuse me, this uh, century that we're living in, more people have suffered for Christ in other nations and even including ours than any time in the history of the world. So these cycles will continue. But notice again, if you're following along, is for his people's sake, the Lord will shorten those days. For his people's sake, the Lord will shorten those days. And last, Jesus tells them what's coming. Here's one more thing he says in the verses we're looking at. False messiahs and prophets will appear to deceive. False messiahs and prophets will appear to deceive. Once more, look at the words of the Life Application Bible Commentary, what it says about this. Jesus warned his followers about the future so that they could learn how to live in the present. We must live each day so close to Christ, always mindful that he is in charge of the timetable. And so what are some of the words we can take? As I was studying uh, Mark 13, uh, I saw that there were 19 imperatives. That means 19 commands. I'm not going to point all of them out to you. One, because I'm not teaching on all of Mark 13, but I want to show you some of the imperatives or the commands that Jesus says in these texts that we can apply to our own life today as we think about how to prepare for whatever it might look like in our generation. First, if you're following along, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. You ever been lied to? You ever been tricked? You ever been duped? One of the things that was so sobering being in Bangkok is that one morning before chapel started, Annie introduced us to a woman that had been trafficked. Fortunately, she had been able to escape. She was from Ethiopia, and because Chris and I had just been in Ethiopia in March helping Craig Fowler, uh, Annie thought we might be interested in meeting this woman. She had been tricked into thinking she was coming for a job in Bangkok, and when she got to the airport, some people that said they were there to help her get to her job actually took her across the border, and some terrible things happened, and she somehow escaped, and she's been separated from her husband and her child and hopes that eventually they can be reunited in Bangkok. I guess what I'm saying is, is that it is something that we all need to be humble about because we say, well, I'll never be deceived. But there are so many warnings in the New Testament that says, do not deceive yourselves. Do not be deceived. Do not be tricked. And so how do we, instead of panicking when we hear things like that, how do we not be deceived? Well, let me say this. 
Have you heard the illustration before that when federal agents are trying to, to, to teach people, banks are trying to teach people how to be able to tell counterfeit money, what do they do? They don't study counterfeit money. They study real money. And they study it so much that they can detect any kind of slight change. And they use a method which is called touch, tilt, look at, look through. And they basically say, look, you can tell the feels different. You can tell by tilting it. You can see sometimes there's some differences. By looking at it, you can notice some things once you know what real money looks like. And you can also look through it to see if it's the real deal, if it has the real markings. And so one of the things you and I can do as we live our lives here is we can absolutely fill our minds with Jesus' words. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when I send him to you, he will remind you of everything I have said to you. He will help you. He will bring back to you. So when you're listening to a teacher and you're trying to measure whether or not they're the real deal, you can remember what I've said and you can tell if they're changing it some way. One of my mentors years ago said that there are three ways that false teachers mess with God's truth. The first thing they do is they mess with the word of God. They change it. They alter it in some way or they add to it or they subtract important things like the hard words and things like that. The second thing they do is that they mess with the deity of Jesus. They say that Jesus was just a human being. He wasn't God. He isn't who he claimed to be. And the third thing they do is they mess with the way of salvation, which is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ dying in our place on the cross for our salvation. I remember I was working, uh, before I ever became a pastor, I was working selling uh, Christian education material uh, to different uh, uh, churches in different states. And I remember one time that a a person was returning the material and they said, "Uh, we can't use that here. And I said, uh, hey, can I just learn from what your experience, uh, why is that? Oh, you guys teach that Jesus died in our place. And I remember thinking, "Uh, yeah, what's the problem? And they, again, they were, they were a church that taught there was another way besides Jesus. So again, don't, don't deceive yourselves. He says, watch out. Second, be on your guard. Stay alert as my witnesses. Be on your guard. He says this a couple times in this passage. Stay alert. When it says be on your guard, it means later in this chapter, he'll actually say what Steve's teaching on next week. Don't let me find you asleep. What can happen is over time, we can just get in laps. We can just do it in a routine where all of a sudden we just become absolutely insensitized to what's really important. Uh, I was reading a, a parable by Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, some of you know that uh, I'm Danish. And so Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. Listen to what he tells about. A wild duck was flying north with his fellow wild ducks in springtime. En route, he happened to land in a barnyard in Denmark where he quickly made friends with the tame ducks that lived there. The wild duck enjoyed the corn and fresh water. He decided to stay for an hour, then for a day, then for a week, and finally for a month. At the end of that time, he contemplated flying to join his friends in the vast northern lands, but he had begun to enjoy the safety of the barnyard and the tame ducks that made him feel so welcome, so he stayed for the summer. One autumn day, he heard of the quacking of his fellow wild ducks as they were flying south. It stirred him with delight. He enthusiastically flapped his wings and rose into the air to join them. Much to his dismay, however, he found he could rise no higher than the eaves of the barn. 
As he waddled back to the safety of the barnyard, he muttered to himself, I'm satisfied here. I have plenty of food and the area is good. Why should I leave? So he spent the winter on the farm. The next spring, when the wild ducks flew overhead again, he felt a strange stirring within his breast, but he did not try to fly up to meet them. When they returned the following autumn, they again called him to rejoin them. But this time, the duck did not even notice them. There was no stirring within his breast. He simply kept on eating corn, which made him fat. And I don't know about you, but when Jesus called us to follow him, he called us to be his witnesses. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he taught them, this is what, this is why I called you. I want you to share with other people what I've done for you and what I can do for them. Have you done that lately? Is there any person who's on your heart who needs a witness Not an arrogant, not a condescending witness, but one that just said, I'm like one beggar who found another beggar who found bread, just telling another beggar where I found bread. This this good news about Jesus, this is, it's all about Jesus. Last uh, Sunday, I told you about being in the international church. They shared their, it it was a vision Sunday. So they shared that their vision was Jesus in all of life. Friends, I want to just say this carefully. If you are mainly a Jesus on Sunday, only follower of Jesus, that when these things come, it will be seen for what it is. But if you're a person that realizes that Jesus called us to follow him in all of life, in everything we do, and you're on the way learning that like I am, then you'll know that when these things come, Jesus can help us with all of life, no matter what we face. This is what he wants us to know. And finally, notice this. Don't worry beforehand. The Lord will provide. Don't worry beforehand. Remember that how he said that? Don't worry. Don't, don't freak out because the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. He will provide. And friends, I, I don't know if I could, you know, hold up under certain pressure and under certain persecution. I can't predict that. I just know this. Jesus promised that he would meet me at that time. My brother and I and sister, we all went to Judson University up in Elgin, and we had a professor there named Dr. Boss. He was a short little guy, and I'll never forget, he said, you know what? He says, I, when I think about what might happen by following Jesus, he said, I'm no martyr. But he said, if God calls me to be a martyr, I believe he will give me martyr's grace. I believe that too, friends. I don't know, but here's one more thing I want to say about this. Jesus was not saying this to just individuals. He always pictured us helping each other. He always pictured a church. When he was dying on the cross, he not only thought of us as individuals, he thought of his church. And he wants us to be people who encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And also that the more we see that day drawing near, that we'll encourage each other more. It's worth it to give your life to Jesus. It's worth it. You will not regret it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all, friends. So I just need to tell you that not only because I was in Bangkok and fighting jet lag, but also because this passage is tough. That I kept, even this morning, I went out for a walk and I said, Lord, what what do you want us to understand? 
And I heard him say this, remind them of what I said in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Whoever would come after me, whoever would become my disciple, let them take up their cross, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And friends, I just want to ask you, if when somebody invited you to believe in Jesus, did you come to a place where you realized you needed to deny yourself, die to yourself in order that Jesus could live in you? Because that surrender is the only way you and I are going to be ready. That's the only way. And so... Um, I, I just will tell you real quick. My wife loves that line from you've got mail when she notices me and I'm not surrendered to Jesus each day. Uh, that line that says you make coffee nervous. Uh, my dad used to say when I'm not surrendered to Jesus, I'm a nervous Nelly. It's so true. But when I give myself each day and start the day by saying, Lord, this day, I willingly die to myself that you might live in me. Oh, man. The surrender. So here's the last line. Each day, stay sensitive to and led by my Holy Spirit is really what Jesus is saying. In this passage, he says, the way you're going to be able to do it is by the help of my Holy Spirit. And so I don't know if you've seen this quote by Susanna Wesley, um, but it's, it's something that I read years ago and I've never forgotten it. Here's what she said. This is the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the relish for spiritual things, then it is sin for you, however innocent it may be in itself. And so when you think about this morning, as we come to the communion table, is there anything that's keeping you from giving your heart fully to Jesus? Is there something you're, you're maybe it's, this is all about control, friends. Remember we talked about I want to know when so I can control things. No, I don't have to know exactly when as long as I'm surrendered to you, Jesus. If I surrender to you, I believe that you will live in me in such a way you will help me meet that challenge. Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.